Hey there, and welcome to the Introverted Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Denise Lee, and I'm a life coach specializing in traumas and addictions. And today I have a special guest, Sue Deagle. She is just a phenomenal woman, and her story is going to really resonate with you on so many levels. Sue has a story of living life after loss and understanding who she is and what she needs and how to rally support around people that love her and nurture her and more importantly how to communicate with others while you're in the midst of grieving and loss if you may not be a widow but maybe you have lost someone dear in your life this episode is also great for you so please make sure you have some space and quiet time to be able to listen to this conversation because I trust that there's going to be something that's going to be beneficial to you. All right. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you hit that follow subscribe button wherever you're listening. That way, as soon as I drop a new episode, you'll be able to listen to it. All right. So stay with me after this short break and we will get straight into it. Hey, Sue, how are you doing today? Very, very good. How are you? I'm doing good. So I heard that you were traveling back and forth to the Middle East. What's up with that? Yeah, I, I I do that pretty frequently for my job. So I work for a defense contractor. And um, what we do for the Defense Department, the U.S. Defense Department, is we operate military bases around the globe and we maintain military aircraft. So, so much of what our military does is in austere and deployed environments. We spend a lot of time supporting uh, the military team members, the warfighters, the sailors, the airmen, the soldiers um, in places like Kuwait or Qatar, or even places in the Pacific, uh, clear up to also Thule, Greenland. Um, so we're, we're kind of all over the world. You know, and the reason why I mentioned it for those of you guys who are listening is not just to get Sue's latest travel exploits, but to say like she's a busy lady and she's moving and it's very easy after a loss to just get yourself totally immersed in work life above anything else. And so would you please share with the audience a little bit about one day you woke up and your husband was no longer with you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me, yeah, I'll share a little bit of that story. So in 20, in November of 2016, um, I, uh, uh, I went to bed one night as a happily married lady with uh, an 11 year old and a 13 year old and a fantastic husband. And I woke up uh, the next day and my husband had passed away. So suddenly, unexpectedly, um, my incredibly healthy 50 year old husband died of a heart attack. And, uh, you know, from then that point in time, certainly like the most, uh, horrible thing that ever happened to me in my 48 years, that's how old I was when he passed away. And, uh, I have been, you know, experiencing the journey of a widow and a mom, um, in these last six plus years. And I've just, you know, I've learned so much about what it is to move through grief, uh, how to accept help from others, which I really wasn't so hot at before, how to make sure that I have good human connection and good connection with nature. And most importantly, that I lead my children, um, you know, during that really hard time, we move our way through, we grow and we change and we are living a life today that isn't the life that we thought we would be living while Mike was alive but it's a great life nonetheless. You know, one of the things that really struck me as I was learning more about your story and understand like what exactly happened was first and foremost, you and Mike really laid an impression on your children to help rally each other rather than just stuff feelings away. And where did that really come from? Would it come from reading books beforehand? Would it come from like your own, own family of origin? Like, where did you learn? Because a lot of times women, especially successful professional women, just want to just dive deeper into work and just pretend like nothing ever happened. Yeah, that's a great question. And 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 uh funnily enough, um, you know, I was married for 18 years before Mike died, and Mike was raised by a single mom. So he was a really, really good communicator, you know, because his mom, you know, had kind of raised him that way. And when we first started dating uh back in the mid-1990s, if we would have an argument or a dispute, I would say, I don't want to talk about this. 
And he would say, well, wait, what? Like, that didn't make any sense to him. He's like, what do you mean you don't want to talk about this? Like, we have to sort it out. We have to figure it out. So he really taught me how to be a communicator when I would have just from my natural bent wanted to jam all those feelings down. So over, you know, years of dating and 18 years of marriage, he taught me how to let my feelings show and how to discuss things, even when they're hard or conflictual. So when he, uh, when he died, I had those skills that he'd actually helped me build. And one of the very first things I said to the kids right out of the gate was, you know, this is so terrible what's happened to us, but we're going to, we're going to feel the feelings and we're going to move through those feelings. We're not going to like stuff anything down. We're going to not pretend like this didn't happen. We're going to talk about daddy, you know, as much as we feel like talking about daddy, because in the end, and this is what I said to them that, you know, daddy built the foundation, the, the basement and the first floor of your house. So we're going to finish off the second floor. That's you without him, but he already, he already is baked into you and you're baked into, you know, your way forward. So we really were very galvanized about the fact that we, we talked about him all the time and we still to this day talk about him, you know, in, in funny ways, you know, what would daddy think of this? Or, you know, what do you think of that? Oh, daddy would hate that. So he's, he's so much part of our life, even though he's not here in the way we wish he were, um, that expressing feelings is just another step in that. So those times when we're not doing so great, you know, because we're really missing him. We can tell that about each other. You know, like my kids will see me and they're like, Oh mom, you look kind of funny. How are you doing? And I will say, you know what? I'm not doing so great today. And, and I'll feel free to say that to them because, you know, they'll get that. They'll come and give me an extra hug. They know that I'll work through it and I'll come out the other side because we've done that over the past six years. You know, I love it when you were telling me about your daughter creating a to-do list. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So let me tell that story. Uh, so my daughter, you know, the kids wanted to go back to school pretty immediately because as my daughter said to me, what do I want to do? Sit around here with all these growing ups being sad. You know, she, she wanted to go back to school and so did my son and be with their people. Right. And their schools did just an amazing job of supporting them and, you know, helping them through. So she came home from school, probably maybe a couple weeks after Mike died. And she said, what, what have you done today? What did you get done today? And I, I showed her my to-do list, which was you know, as long as my arm and I hadn't crossed a single thing off. And it's not because I wasn't making phone calls and doing emails in the, you know, in the midst of also like crying and being upset. It's just that like tasks were more complicated and my brain wasn't really working. So she's like, okay, give me your notebook. We're going to make a different list. And in her little bubble handwriting of an 11 year old, she made me a long-term list and a tomorrow list. And the tomorrow list had things like take a walk, you know, mm. get the mail, like things that things you feel like you could cross off, plus a few little more complicated things. And she said, you know, I know when you, I come home at the end of the day, you'll have gotten your today list done. And, you know, that will make you feel better. So she, you know, she was helping me through that time. And, you know, there's a there's a word for that that psychologists use, and that's called mattering. Like she mattered to me. Like I couldn't, I was struggling. And in order to have a better tomorrow, she, you know, figured out how to help me. And, and in raising kids through grief, you know, there's so much sorrow and, you know, there's so many things, Oh, Oh, daddy would have been here for this or here for that. But what you can do on the flip side of that is not necessarily wrap your kids in bubble wrap and don't let them have any hard experiences. What you can do is let them matter to you, let them contribute to your mental health, to the health of the family, to the moving forward. So, you know, Kendall was the to-do list maker and Connor was like, I'll take out the trash. You know, now he wanted to be like the man of the house. And so, and then he would also like leave me little notes, like Mike used to leave me. So they, they filled in those gaps not because I asked them to, just because that was a natural part of what they had watched their dad do. And they knew that that was going to contribute to the overall health of the family. And, you know, then, and I did the same for them, but it's kind of unique how we think about that. So we want to shelter our kids and protect them and have them not see, you know, any of our sad feelings, but then that's just not authentic. That's not what's actually happening to all of us. And mattering is just a, it's a really key concept. I think that we need to think about a little bit more. 
you know, I mean, I'm a mother too. And one of the tendencies as mothers is to be this mama bear. And like, you know, you see shirts of t-shirts, women wearing mama bear, literally. And basically shielding them from everything and anything that's painful. And I don't think that gives us or them the ability to grow emotionally. And it's especially true in moments of crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I so agree with that because the the beauty of the things that they did for me and their reflections on the other side of them is it helped them. It empowered them. They're like, oh my God, like I did this thing and that helped my mom in a really tough time or for a really tough day. And then you feel empowered. If you're doing that for other people, you can help solve problems for yourself. And you're like, oh no, like you can look back and say, we made it through. And I was a big contributor to that. And if, and if I would have protected them all and, and I joke around with them, you know, you know, we all know how kids are. Right. And so I used to say to them, listen, I'm not trying to tell you what to do because I want to be the boss of you or because like some hierarchy thing, I am making recommendations to you because I want to lessen your suffering. Like, I don't want to eliminate it. I, I want to like use my wisdom and advice for you because I just worry about you having more suffering. So I think, you know, in terms of the mama bear thing, I think it's still good for us mamas and papas to be trying to limit the suffering of our children. But in the end, you know, you can't eliminate that. You can just guide them the best that you can, and then you can hold their hand through the suffering when that actually happens. And in fact, Kendall said to me one time, she said, uh, you know what, mom, everyone is out there living their la-di-da life. And when something bad happens to them, they're not going to know what to do, but I'm going to know what to do. And, you know, she said that based on her experience. I love that so much. I mean, they, kids are always watching what we do. Yeah. For right or for wrong. (laughs) They're, They're watching. Yeah. And one of the things I love so much that you mentioned was that I gave recommendations. And when we give children recommendations, we're basically telling our each and every uh, child, like, hey, you've got a brain and it's brilliant and you can use it. And you don't have to call me at every single like moment that you're worried or afraid. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a perfect way of saying it, right? This is just like, this is an idea for you to consider. This is because I've been through something. And, you know, most times they don't listen to us because we're we're their mom or their dad. But at the same time, they can all take a little bit of that input in and make the choice themselves. And then they can even say later, well, if I'd have done that thing my mom recommended, this might have turned out better. But again, that it's up to them. Like our job is to grow them, right? And to launch them into the world. And we don't do that without um, anticipating that there will be some hard times for them. I mean, not as hard as losing your dad. Nobody wants that to happen to a child. But at the same time, my kids are, are, are more prepared for the tougher things. And we actually used to say when, when things went like really badly sideways, you know, well, I mean, nobody died, right? Because that was our metric. That was like the worst thing that happened to us is we lost someone that we loved so, so dearly. So when other bad things happened, you know, friends rejected you or bad things happened, it would hurt like heck, but it wouldn't hurt as bad as that really terrible thing that happened to us. And we survived that terrible thing. So we must be able to survive whatever terrible thing is happening to us in the moment. It's going to take time. It's going to take tears. It's going to, you know, take some friends or some being out in nature or some being, uh, you know, at church or with your books or any activities that you think are helping boost you up and building up a toolkit of those activities. But eventually you will feel better again. In fact, I was just having this conversation with my daughter this morning before she left for school about like a, you know, a hard breakup from last year. And she's like, you know, I think about that now. And I think I'm so much better off. Right. And that ability to just reflect. That's really what we're trying to create this ability to reflect so they can use their brains and say, okay, no, I survived. I'm strong. I'm powerful. I want to dig a little bit more about the the loss because I think everyone knows that we have to move on and find a new normal. But in that first year, (laughs) 
what is normal? And so for I, I really want to ask this question for anyone who's listening, who not just suffered the loss of a spouse or a partner, but perhaps a relationship ended or perhaps something unexpected just shook them to the core. Like, Walk me through that first year. I know you mentioned about, you know, things that you've done to kind of like rally and support from obviously your kids, but like, what did that first year really look like for you? Yeah, this is a great point. And thank you also for, you know, a lot of people say to me when they've had different kinds of suffering, they're like, but it's not as bad as your husband dying. And I always say, no, no, listen, there's no hierarchy to suffering. Like whether you have a sudden diagnosis or a divorce or a, a job loss, you know, we don't have to force rank whose suffering is worse than the other person's suffering. That's that's a waste of time. What we have to do is like figure out how we're going to put one foot in front of the other during these really terrible times. And, and that feeling of suffering is common. We don't talk about it because it's taboo and not a social norm. You don't want to reveal the suffering in your life or people aren't very good listeners to the suffering in your life, but we're all experiencing something, right? Everybody's got something. So for me in that first year, it was literally just figuring out how to put one foot in front of the other. Like I didn't have high expectations for myself. I didn't have high expectations for the kids. I just was putting one foot in front of the other, making sure, you know, that we, we had the groceries that we needed, that I was paying the mortgage, that I was, you know, earning an income and providing for the children. Um, But I didn't, expect a lot out of that year. And and honestly, it stretched into probably the second year before I started having more moments of uh, equilibrium or seeing like the path to the future. And this is, it's very, very individual. So, so for me and uh, Denise, you and I talked about this before. I, I really used books a lot to help me cope and not necessarily, um, books that were like a widow's guide to whatever, which those are great. Like those are very, very helpful, but that wasn't my go-to in the first year. My go-to was more books that told stories. So more memoirs like uh, Joan Didion's A Year of Magical Thinking or C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed, because every time I read one of those books, I, I absorbed the story of this person and the story of how they moved forward and what it was like to feel acute grief, which was exactly what I was feeling. So I didn't feel alone because these people had written about this in books. So I was like, oh no, that that really helped me relate and, and move forward and feel okay with not feeling okay, which is exactly where I was at the time. So, so you know, that process of absorbing these books, spending a lot of time in nature, which I which I did tremendously and still do to this day, that's a big salve to me. And 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 my friends with with specific friends who Whenever I was feeling sad about a particular thing, I would say to myself, oh, I don't feel that great. Like I'm going to have breakfast with Luann because she's going to make me feel better. And I would, I would call her up. Hey, can you do breakfast this week? Yes. Yes. And we would go to breakfast and literally she would just listen to me and cry with me, right? Which was what I needed. Just someone with that listening ear. So I did a lot of trial and error on the things that made me feel better in the first year or two. And I didn't hold myself to a timetable. I didn't say to myself, oh, well, it's the first anniversary. I should feel better now. Nope. I, and I think that's terribly wrong it, because it's such an individual specific thing, you know, for your suffering. So please let yourself feel what you need to feel for as long as you need to feel it, because it's, you know, it goes in waves. There are times you're going to feel great. And there are times you're not going to feel great. And that's okay because you are going to come out the other side. I love the fact that a, the books, because I think for a lot of us, like you said, we get lost in our own heads and we think to ourselves, nobody, 8 billion people in this world, nobody knows me or my story or can relate with me or even give me advice and that this gets blusted when we read from people who know I mean for example I think about a man's search for meaning Victor Frankl as one resource I mean you've mentioned some other good books as well C.S. Lewis my goodness he (laughs) spent all day reading C.S. Lewis stuff maybe years reading C.S. Lewis stuff but this idea of like we are not an island to ourselves like there are other people that can guide us and give us solutions that can comfort us in a way that we can't find anywhere else. But 
also the idea of immersing ourselves with nature. I mean, there have been numerous studies that have shown that that restorative healing process of water and wind and just nature. And we forget nature's magical elixir is literally right outside, not looking at a computer side, a computer, but just <laughs> looking outside and just embracing that. And I think that for anyone who's listening who's going through some loss or some type of issue, like you, if you got feet and hands, you can walk outside and be healed. Trust me, you, you can. And I just love that you mentioned that. And the other thing that I was just thinking about when you're talking was this idea that it, not having a timeline. And even though I said, what was your first year like? I didn't say, were you happier the first year? Because that could look differently for everybody. Yeah, it's so true. People want people like, okay, what's the roadmap? Uh, you know, what's the framework? What's the timeline? And because that's how we run the rest of our lives. So there's, there's no shame in feeling that. And I remember thinking to myself, if I read these books and then I do the math, I can see how long it took for these people to feel better. <laughs> but it's not like that. Like people don't, you know, they don't feel better on a timeline. They're not following a specific roadmap. You have to actually, it, it is just an individual endeavor, which is why what I would really encourage before tragedy happens to you, because it's going to happen to all of us in some way, shape, or form, that we are strengthening ourselves and that we are building a human connection that's going to support us during those really tough times. Because my friends and family came through in spades, right? And that was from a foundation that I had laid before Mike died. And, and we all have a chance to reflect and get to know ourselves better make sure the people that are, are around us are supporting us today in the way that we deserve. Um, and then whenever the hard times come, those people will come through for you. So you're saying that my solution won't come by using AI? <laughs> so I personally don't think it'll come by using AI because what we know about the brain and neuroscience, right, is that we humans, you know, we were built to be in tribes, we're built to share with each other, we're built to talk about our feelings, and maybe talking, you know, back to an AI bot or a chat GPT kind of thing makes you feel like you're having an interaction, but I'm just not sure that really hits all the neurotransmitters in our brain. I think the real, the real human interaction of the way we were wired that sharing is such a big deal in the healing process. And, and, and that comes from a person, you know, I'm a person who was like a solo player. I'm, oh, I'm better alone and I don't need anybody's help and I'm super independent. And that was how I was, you know, for a really long portion of my life, even up until Mike's death. But that just, his death just broke me of that, right? I had to not only have the help I needed to personally heal, but I needed the help with my kids. I needed the help um, of other parents. I needed the help of my family. And, and I just realized, oh my gosh, it's so rich with connection. And my life is so much better in that regard now, because, uh, you know, the Mike's death was, was a horrible, horrible experience, but there are some things that I have gained and I have gained the wisdom to know that I need other human beings, not AI to help me move and heal and grow in the way I should. Okay, I just, I just had to put that out there so those who are listening, because I think there's too many people are thinking of the AI as like the end all be all for all problems. And please just don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's each other, folks. It's yeah. each other. Yeah, we got to have each other. <laughs> and, and, and while we're talking about, let's go on a little softer pitch about seeking help via only online mm -hmm. and this idea of false intimacy via, you know, chat rooms and social media and thinking that, well, you know, the words, reading words on the screen from another person we may not see is a substitute for real life human connection. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, to, you know, as a caveat, if that's all that's available to you and you don't, and you're not supported by the people around you and you can only have online connection, then I, I understand that. But at, at the same time, you really this, this physical connection with each other, the, you know, being in the presence of another person, I don't just don't think that can be replaced. And I think, you know, evolutionarily, maybe hundreds of years, of years from now, we can, you know, get the grasp of how to use our technology to make one-on-one uh, -on -one stuff feel the same, but it's not right now, 
right? Right now we are still needing each other. We're still needing that hug, right? We're still needing that hand on our shoulder or that hand on our back, you know, to help us through the toughest times. And, and when we substitute, you know, when you, when you go online, if something gets a little hard online or the conversation is not something that you like online, you can just peace out. Like you can exit that chat room. You can, you know, um, stop looking at your Instagram feed, but when you're with another person and you hit a bumpy patch, or a, maybe you disagree about something, you learn how to work that through. And then you come out the other side, even more connected. And so I think online, it's harder to come out even more connected. It's hard to really amp up our connection muscles, you know, really work them out online. I think it's just a little bit more um, effective when we are in person, which, which requires courage, you know, which requires vulnerability, all, all kinds of stuff like that, the tough stuff, but we know the tough stuff is what makes us better anyway. You know, and to your point earlier, you're absolutely right. Some people just don't have access. They may live in a remote area or they may not have exposure to certain people. I'm not talking about those people. <laughs> I'm talking about, I just want everyone to be very clear about who yep. you're talking to. If yep. you're living in Seattle or Boston or some major metropolitan area, trust me, there is somewhere you can meet. And, you know, here's the thing. In our mind, we have a very good way of creating narratives that aren't lodged in reality. And yeah. the internet can attract, uh, how should I say the polite way, uh, can attract ideas that aren't conducive to mental health. Yeah. Wow, that's a it's a great point. Like, we're, we all want to create our own narratives in life about what works for us, right? Because... Um, you know, we don't want to be uncomfortable, but I think one of the, just the amazing things about having my whole worldview kind of blown up at my husband's death is I can sense the real a lot more. I know what works, you know, and authentically is an overused term, of course, but, but it, it describes it. It's like, no, I need that human connection. I need the person to person connection. And, and, you know, we all suffered during COVID not being able to do that, but now like I enjoy being with my coworkers when we're, you know, when we're going on a trip together, I, you know, I certainly enjoy being with kids face-to-face. I always like sit in the kitchen and hope I can catch that 15 minutes of these teenagers walking by, you know, at the beginning and the end of the day. We know if we're honest, how that makes us feel physically and mentally, and there is no substitute. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, as I'm recording, as we're recording this message, this is on May 8th, 2023. I'm going to put a date stamp on it because I was just reading uh, still a couple of days ago that the World Health Organization officially declared that COVID-19 is no longer a threat. And But the, unfortunately, it caused so much damage in terms of being fearful of connection, being fearful of one-on-one uh, contact. And I'm hoping that even... Now, as I'm, we're talking that people were trying to kind of work through that pain and work through that phobias and work, I mean, because that was a form of losses too, because for nearly two years, we were told to uh, wash our hands and stay in our rooms and look at video cameras if we wanted to talk with people. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, and that's another way to say, well, it's just not quite safe. Like, no, if I went to a big gathering or if I got to know strangers or, you know, because we've spent good two and a half years being told to be afraid of that. And it's like some conscious rewiring. It's some conscious challenging, again, of that narrative that we were talking about, right? Of what's best for us. Like, is it, is it time to stick our necks out? I mean, let's at least go somewhere, even if we feel like we need to wear a mask when we're doing that. We, we have to find, you know, it's not all or nothing. We have to ease our way back in. And, and that's a corollary to your journey after grief or after loss, you know, in, in all the ways that we described earlier, is you're easing your way back in. You're not like jumping into the deep end, you know, I'm all in, you know, I'm ready for a whole bunch of people. No, you're, you're working your way into meeting maybe just a few people at a time before you go into a crowd like environment. So, but we, we really do have to challenge ourselves. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable because that's where the growth happens. And we have to be willing to 
be with other people again and be forming those kinds of relationships and re-solidifying the ones that we had. And that happens when we're together. And in fact, Vivek Murthy, the current Surgeon General, um, has a great book that I'm about halfway through called Together. And he actually talks about the epidemic of loneliness. And, you know, you gave it a date stamp, Denise, but he he just put an article, I think, out in, in the New Yorker or the Wall Street Journal, I'm not sure which one, about this epidemic of loneliness. And sometimes when we know what our brains are up to, like when we can read about the science of what our brains are doing, it's easier to say, oh, wait, that thing I've been telling myself, that narrative about like not wanting to be with people or having everything, this is great on Zoom, no problem. Maybe I should challenge that. So I would recommend folks uh, to look up his work because he just uh, he just re-announced an initiative as the Surgeon General to really tackle loneliness in America. Oh, you know what, Sue, I'm all on. In fact, I read that article and he said to the point where, you know, loneliness is more dangerous than smoking. Yes. And I was like, wow, that was so powerful. So yes, I I also want to vouch for that as well, that resource as well, because I think that a lot of people don't realize how loss and death and dying can just take you into a world where you may not come out (laughs) in terms of being able to see reality. And part of the things that we're, we're having this conversation it's about for those who are listening and say, well, you know what? You don't know me. You don't know what my situation is. And like, well, we may not know your situation, but talking about it is better than you being alone. Yeah. And, and I, that's such a great point. And we, do, we absolutely don't know because again, each, each situation is so individual, everybody's circumstances, but we as human beings, you know, we're part of nature and we were meant to heal and people have lost loved ones for the last 200,000 years since we've been walking upright. And it has, has it been easy for them? Absolutely not. It's been really, really hard and challenging for them. And they've gotten through it in different ways in community, you know, uh, with whatever tools they have in their toolkit, but we can't say that we weren't meant to heal when really bad things happen to us because just like the forest fire blazes through the forest, you know, new saplings and new growth come after that. And that that's part of what we're made of. And, and uh, it's, I'm not diminishing the absolutely heartbreaking nature of loss. And, and there's rarely a week that goes by that I don't shed some tears missing Mike or thinking about what our life was like or wishing he was with me. But that doesn't mean that on the flip side, I'm not living a really vibrant life. And maybe some of that is because I'm very willing to talk about my loss. And society has kind of made it now that that's a little bit, you know, unacceptable. Like, oh my God, she's talking about death or, oh, you know, that freaks people out. But that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? We're supposed to be talking about the human condition and this shared experience that we're all having, because if we talked about it, we would know how to console each other better. We would suffer less and we would get on to leading the vibrant lives that we were meant to lead. You know, it's so funny. We were talking a little bit about this before we uh, obviously started this podcast where it's like, we're oversharing, but not sharing at all. It's like, how does that even work? (laughs) Yeah, I love how you said that oversharing, but not really sharing at all. So we're, you know, we're oversharing about, you know, things that we pick and choose to share about, but we're not really sharing about our hearts, about what the things that are really tough for us. We're not being um, really open about the struggles that we're having, the things that make us feel more attached to each other. Um, so we're, we're very selectively oversharing, but not sharing about the really vulnerable things. And yeah, and it's, how do we open the space? How do we create the space where we can talk with someone about the pain, but not be fearful that, oh my goodness, we're overburdening them and they're going to want to avoid us because they're going to think we're just going to cry constantly when we're around them. Yeah. That's that's a big fear. It's a big fear. A lot of people have from not wanting to connect. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that is such a major part of it. And and so, so what's our commitment 
to changing the conversation around loss, right? As people who've experienced loss and people who have listened to people's stories, right? So I mean, Denise, you do that for a living. You know how to listen to the struggles that people have gone through and you know how to help them move forward. So to me, like the secret is that we need to be both better sharers and that's understanding your audience and not kind of trauma dumping onto people, but, you know, being like, no, I, I, and I, you know, I get the chance to tell people that I'm a widow because people will ask me, what does your husband do? And, and I'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm a widow. And I choose to answer that way rather than saying my husband is deceased or my husband passed away or I lost my husband. I say, I'm a widow because I'm standing in front of you and my husband isn't. And whenever I say I'm a widow, you're focused on me, this person, this alive person, and you're feeling your feelings about me. You're not thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, there's a dead guy in this story, right? There's there's death here. You're thinking about Sue Deagle, this widow standing mm. in front of you. So I'm very conscious of that. And, and people oftentimes, they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I say, oh, thank you. I, I deeply appreciate that. Um, but, you know, my kids and I have really come a long way in our healing and we are living vibrant lives. And that's, that's all the discussion is unless they want to talk more. So I'm not like, you know, telling them my whole life story. I'm telling them I'm a widow. Yes, it's hard, but we are moving on and we are, and we have a great life. And just that little snippet, I'm breaking the taboo about talking about it. I'm breaking the social norm that says, oh my gosh, someone died and you still are like standing on your own two feet and talking and smiling with me here because we we have this weird perception that even all these years later, that if you have lost someone that you can't function, like that you should be on your fainting couch or that you never come out of your house. And, and it's like six plus years. like and, and And so when I chip away at it like that, as somebody who's sharing my story, I'm a widow. Uh, yes, it's hard. Um, but I have a great life, then I'm also helping people be better listeners because they're not afraid of what's going to happen next. And if you haven't had the trauma yet, that's something that you yourself need to work on is being a good listener, right? And because I'm a, like, people can tell me anything about their, their sorrows and their suffering. And is it hard? Is it hard to absorb people's sad stories? Yeah, it is hard, but I feel like I'm the person for that job because I've been through my own hard thing too. And then I'm teaching them, no, you can share. There are safe places to share. You can share a little bit of your story or a lot of your story. So it, it really, Denise, is back to your discussion of like being in person and, and sharing and watching each other's vibe. How, how deep can you go with this sharing and how well can you do the listening? We all need to break the, the stigma of not talking about our losses, because then we're, you know, we're creating better listeners at the same time. And we're all better in the end because we all belong to each other, right? We're, we, we think we're separate. This is a very individualistic society. And believe me, I, I like being my like solo player, but I know that in the end, anybody I help that comes back around to me in the end, because we're just all connected. Wow, this is so beautiful. I, I definitely want to dig in on both parts because it is a two-way street, the listener as well as the receiver. And for, you know, as, as we're thinking about who we want to talk with, have discernment, have absolute discernment. Just because they're in close proximity to you doesn't mean they're equipped to be able to have a yeah. conversation. <laughs> yes, no, so true. <laughs> And, and, and we're going to have to have a lot of grace because a lot of people haven't been raised to have, like um, your, your husband did, the ability to communicate and not just want to sweep things under the rug. So we're going to have to have a little compassion for ourselves and compassion for the other person. If someone clearly shows their inability or unwillingness to, to, to be able to receive information, that's okay. Yeah, maybe things might change tomorrow because I think a lot of people say, well, they weren't nice to me, so I'm going to avoid them. And that's going to be the end of the situation. I'm like, whoa, whoa, maybe this is going to teach you how to have more discernment. Yeah. There's lessons to be learned, you know, and for those who are interested in and in, in being able to want to facilitate these conversations, let's move beyond this. How are you doing? Instead of saying, how can I support you? 
Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a, that's perfect. Yeah. And, and, um, and actually, you know, to people you're closest with, come up with ideas, give them some options. Hey, you want to go for a walk with me? Hey, you want to go to the movies with me? Because sometimes when you're in the middle of your suffering, you don't know what you need, but you know, if somebody like gave you a multiple choice thing, you could probably pick something right. That, 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 Oh no, that lands and that feels good. We don't want to put a burden on other people and be like, well, how can I help you? And you're like, Oh my God, like I can barely put one foot in front of the other in those early days. But if you're like, here's some ideas or, you know, one of the most beautiful things in the early days of my grief is people would say, I'm going to drop this lasagna off on your front porch. And, you know, whenever you're ready, you just come out and get it, but you don't have to talk to me and you don't have to entertain me and you don't have to return the dish like that. That is compassion. That's action and compassion at the same time. Right. Because you're not expecting anything out of the griever, which I think is beautiful. So you you didn't have anyone demanding their Tupperware back? Well, I mean, if we did, honestly, and and I'm this kind of gal, people know this about me. If but if I knew that somebody was like, I want to come over and I want to bring this to you, and if I was like, oh, they're going to try to come in my house, and oh, I'm going to have to return the Tupperware, I would very respectfully decline, and and they would be like, well, wait, no, I but I want to bring you, and I would be like, no, thanks, no, no, thank you. Because setting limits, setting your own limits on you, on what you know is good for you is also critical in the grieving process. Don't entertain people that are going to drain your energy. Don't do anything that you don't want to do in those early days. You're, you're, it's survival then, right? And you shouldn't be worried about other people's feelings or, you know, the fact that they made something for you and now their family's going to have to eat it. That's really not as a griever, your problem. You know, at this point, I just have to just put out a public service announcement that during times of loss and grief, there seems to be like a beacon for narcissists and sociopaths to be like coming <laughs> around your around your 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 proximity because you're seeing they see you vulnerable, you're off your your senses, you're feeling weak, and they said, "Oh, perfect, it's time to take advantage of the situation." And this is a moment where self-care has to be so high because they, people with borderline personality disorders prey upon people. I don't know if you had any of that happening with you, but I've heard that many, many times um, when something tragic happened and someone is demanding money or all your time, all sorts of craziness. Yeah, no, I was lucky enough not to experience that. And, uh, and I was very, very focused on only doing the things that would support the kids or myself. So I think that's also part of the PSA that, you know, you got to focus on yourself during that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just if, if you're focusing on taking care of yourself, I mean, I'm not going to say like, you, you're lucky. <laughs> I've been in this business a long time for lots of interesting stories, but just being aware that if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Yeah. If, I, if we just have to boil it all down to one central message, that would be that. And so in this last kind of part of our conversation, I want to pivot and ask you about avoiding the tendency to want to be workaholic. This is so tempting to just keep at the hustle, keep at the grind. How do you keep yourself centered and not wanting to just overwhelm yourself with work? Yeah, that's a really tough one from a, from a, you know, recovering workaholic here uh, from one to another, I'm sure um, that I, I needed to be working, you know, pretty soon after Mike died, because that was my identity, right? I've always been a, a working person, um, business executive, and I felt safe doing that, right? I felt like that was something I could be good at. That was something I could excel at when the rest of my life was sort of, uh, you know, in a shambles where the, you know, the bomb had just gone off. So work was really critical to me and my successes at work and the connections I made with my coworkers were really important for my mental health and, and for my sanity. Um, I think it helps to have, you know, two young kids, uh, that also were my focus, but really that was pretty much it. It was just work and the kids, you know, my friends, of course, supported me and, and came in and out of my life and were great fitting in around the edges, but I probably devoted more time to work than, um, than I should have, you know, if I really reflect back on that. 
I, I don't regret it, you know, because it really, it really saved me. It really gave me meaning and purpose along with being a mom at that time. Um, but, you know, now as I, as I feel the years unfold, I know better how to make space in my life so I can pause and reflect and, and actually absorb some of the things that I'm learning and turn it into wisdom instead of just like heads down, you know, another PowerPoint to do, another presentation to do. Um, and, and I can sense now that I know myself enough to say, you know, hold up here. I need more space in my life. I need to go take that walk around the neighborhood. I need to go get ice cream with the kids. Um, I need to step back because constant go, go, go at work is not actually creating a better work product at work. When I make that space in my life, that's what's making me better at work and at home. So I would say, you know, it took me probably a couple of years into my grief process to, um, to not use work as a place to hide. For, for me, I know I'm physically, when it's time for me to rest, I, I just can't concentrate. Um, the axles aren't moving as fast as they need to, but what, <laughs> you, what does that look like? We're like, okay, my body's learning me that it's time to pump the brakes here. Yeah, for me, it's just, it, it's a similar circumstance. I just get overwhelmed. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to process all the information that's coming in and I have got to step away. So it's a physical feeling, even though it's generated by a mental one, right? Even though I've reached maximum mental capacity, I get the tightening in my chest. I get my shoulders kind of hunched up to my ears. I get the like, oh my gosh, uh, feeling of being stressed out um, physically in my body. And I'm like, oh no, okay. Nope. This isn't how it's supposed to be. You know, <laughs> work isn't supposed to make me feel this way all the time. It's time to let down my shoulders and, uh, you know, put some breath into my stomach and relax a little bit. So to me, the physical signs are the first signs that I'm mentally overloaded. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> yes. And you're absolutely right too. I am a recovering workaholic myself because I, I could grind, forget about an eight hour day. I can grind out a 15 hour day if I really wanted to. Wow. Back in the day. Yeah. I, <laughs> 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 I, I think, I, I think in, 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 in those heightened moments, I think I was considering wearing adult diapers so I could avoid that. <laughs> Not that full disclosure, but, but for women and obviously men who are listening, I know I have men and women who listen to this podcast you know, you may have been taught from your family, uh, from people that you had held in high esteem that you just work through the pain and you're going to get stronger. And that was the flex that enabled you to feel good about yourself. But now that we're becoming to learn more about how stress can literally lead to cancer, autoimmune disease, just to name a few, now is the time for us to say, hey, the work will always be here, but I may not be here always. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and having, and having, my husband died of a heart attack and he was incredibly healthy, but he had a very stressful career. And so when I feel my heart racing from some stress at work, I'm like, oh no, this is not, nope, not healthy, not good. Uh, I need to take a step back and, uh, you know, and, and relax and honor my body. It's the only body I have. Right. And Mike's body failed him. And I, you know, I have learned from that lesson that being wrapped up and being very stressed at my profession, um, isn't the way that I'm going to live a long and healthy life. Absolutely. I mean, and to, to your point earlier, Sue, in the beginning of our conversation, I mean, we are modeling for children. Yeah. They're watching. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're watching oh. it all. Yes. Yeah. All of it. So one of the things that I, I just wanted just to ask all of my guests, like what main point do you really want everyone that's listening to know to take away from? Yeah, I love this. Yeah. So so my main point is, and, and my whole purpose for wanting change wanting to change the conversation around loss and death in our culture is because I know if we actually talked about this more, if we broke the stigmas, the taboos, the social norms, and admitted that we have had these losses, we would console each other better, which I think we can all argue we're pretty bad at consoling each other. Uh, we would suffer less because we wouldn't feel alone. We would know our experiences are common. And 
most especially, we could live vibrant lives. I have had a terrible loss of the love of my life, and I'm not living the life I thought I was going to be living, but I am living a vibrant life nonetheless. That death, that breaking of my paradigm and my worldview opened me up to see the world and other human beings in a different way. And now I notice everything. I feel more emotions. My life is enriched from that. And I believe we all have the power to live vibrant lives. And, and that's why I really want to open up the path to this conversation. And I'm so grateful that you were so vulnerable to obviously share it with other media personalities and with me and and I'm hoping that as people are listening, that they're like, okay, I'm not that unique. My story may not be exactly what Sue's is, but I can at least I can learn from Sue and other people. So I just want to just thank you so much for this, for your will, willingness to be open and honest. And hopefully people who are listening can just have some really good takeaways. So where can people find you and continue the conversation? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And this is, uh, so I write a weekly newsletter on topics just like we, Denise and I discussed today. And you can find that at www.theluminist.org. Um, and it's also on Substack, but it's easiest to get there uh, through the luminous.org. My story's on there um, and my writings as well. And I really, you know, we're really just trying to create a community of people who want to talk about the hard stuff because it actually leads to the richness of life. So that's where folks can find me. Uh, and I'm going to leave a link in the show notes below. So if you didn't write the luminous.org correctly, I got your back. It's, it's the show notes below. <laughs> Uh, Sue, I, I just, I just want to thank you for creating this space, and and I am so happy that you are able to share it, your story, not from a place of woe is me, but hey, this is this helped me, this helped my children, this helped me see things in a different way, so that we can be able to create healthy conversations about what it is to have a work life balance, what it is to be able to thrive after loss. And this should be such a great conversation for those who have not been willing to have an honest conversation with themselves. I'm hoping that this will be a blessing for them as well. I agree. And I really appreciate the opportunity, Denise. Thanks so much. No, thank you. So those of you guys who are listening, please check out the Luminous at Org. Continue the conversation. This is something that really stirs your heart. And also make sure you share this podcast with somebody else. That way they can be able, if they're dealing with loss or any type of just the world not working out the way they want. They have someone that can they can relate to. So again, Sue, thank you so much. And I'm just excited to talk with you at a future time. Thank you. All right. And until then, everyone who is listening, take care and be awesome.